Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Joy Newmeyer. Today we'll be talking to Rebecca Mitchell about her book, Nietzsche's Orphans. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Joy Newmeyer. Today we'll be talking to Rebecca Mitchell about her book, Nietzsche's Orphans, Music, Metaphysics, and the Twilight of the Russian Empire, published by Yale University Press. Nietzsche's Orphans traces how in late imperial Russia, music came to be seen as a transcendent force that could overcome the problems of modernity, as well as what happened to this dream after 1917. It also provides some really fascinating insight into some of Russia's major composers and the context that shaped their work. Rebecca Mitchell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. So just to get us started, I was hoping you could tell us a bit about yourself, how you came to studying Russia and music. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm originally from uh, a very small town in northeastern Saskatchewan in Canada. Um, I was born in a town called Nipawin, um, probably about 5,000 people total. And so uh, it was a long way from there to end up studying and doing a PhD in Russian history. Um, and it was not a very straightforward path that I followed, actually. Um, I became interested in music early on, and I took piano lessons um, from the time I was about eight. And I played a lot of different kinds of music. Um, I played a lot of music by Chopin and others. And then uh, my first degree was actually in music. I did a Bachelor of Music degree in piano performance. And it was while I was at university Mm. that... I discovered the music of the composer Alexander Skriabin. I was looking for you know, some new repertoire to try out, and I was just fascinated. I had never heard uh, music like that before. So that was sort of my first in um, into thinking about Russia more broadly. Uh, I remember at the time I went to the library after I had discovered Skriabin because I wanted to learn more about his background. And at that point in time, I didn't find any particularly insightful literature about him. Um, I found some things that piqued my curiosity, uh, such as the fact uh, in one biography, I read that he thought that he was God. Um, But, you know, (laughs) it, it didn't actually explain that much. And Uh, I kept looking and I I discovered that he had written philosophical notebooks, but they hadn't been translated into English. Um, And that was then sort of the the next impetus for me to think about learning Russian language. And, you know, things progressed from there. I became more and more aware that, especially when you look at someone like Skriabin, you can't understand his music without um, understanding the culture that he came from. And so that ultimately developed into me uh, going to Russia, doing some language study there and falling in love with the history of the country as well. And so um, in the end, I 
did a PhD in Russian history at the University of Illinois, and I was able to bring together those two interests. Mm -hmm. Um, So what was the place of music in turn-of-the-century Russia that you explore in your book? And what was it about music in particular, rather than other art forms, that made it so central to the culture? Well, one of the things that uh, I became very interested in as I started reading more about uh, late imperial Russia, so the time right before the 1917 revolution, um, was how ubiquitous uh, discussions of music actually were. Uh, this was not just within like musical circles per se, uh, but within educated society more broadly. Um, a lot of literary figures from the time, um, a lot of artists as well, were obsessed with this image of music and its its potential power um, in a way to transform the world around them. And they had somewhat different perspectives on what exactly that meant. Um, But they all really appreciated the fact that, uh, at least from their perception, music was unique amongst all of the arts because uh, it existed in time, but it didn't really have a spatial component in the same way as the other art forms. And um, this, of course, ties in with ideas that go back to Hegel and to Schopenhauer as well. But um, this idea that music was somehow more spiritual than the other arts, that it was a higher form of art because it had this more immediate connection to the human spirit, um, I think was one of the things that attracted so many people to thinking about music as a way of overcoming the material conditions that they found themselves in. Mm. And would you say there's anything unique about the role of music in turn of the century Russia, as opposed to say in Germany or elsewhere in Europe? Well, to a certain extent, I think it's uh, a continuation of the romantic impulse um, in music that we see in Germany and France and other countries, uh, particularly in Germany, of course. One of the things that I found really fascinating in the case of Russia is that, uh, you know, the 19th and the early 20th centuries are really times where you have an impulse towards the nationalization of musical styles. And you see that very strongly in Germany, um, this idea that music is somehow embodying the soul of the people, right, Um, with Herder and folk song and this sort of thing. Um, In the Russian context, it became really interesting because, um, you know, Russia, of course, is an empire with people of many different ethnic backgrounds. And there there seemed to be a really interesting tension between um, this image of music as somehow embodying a specific national character and then the fact that not everyone uh, who is participating in musical spheres in in Russia would consider themselves um, ethnically Russian. And so it had this interesting component of um, touching upon, I think, a central issue in educated society of the time, which was, you know, what does it actually mean um, in this context to be Russian? And that there were different um, understandings of that, which also gives it a really unique status in terms of thinking about uh, Russia as empire as well. Mm -hmm. So who were Nietzsche's orphans in particular? And why do you refer to them as orphans rather than sons or daughters? (laughs) Um, So the 
term that I used for them actually came to me rather spontaneously. I was riding the Moscow Metro um, when I was uh, doing my dissertation research, and I was I was thinking a lot about um, the texts that I'd been reading, the letters and um, the various publications um, that came out of educated society in Russia. And I should note that the, the people I talk about in my book are from the educated um, levels of society. These are people that, for the most part, traveled to Europe. They had connections. Um, I, I don't look at the lower um, echelons of society and um, music in that context. Um, so there were people who were participating in a broader European discourse about music, about culture, about philosophy. And it struck me that, um, in particular, Nietzsche's uh, conception of music as this Dionysian force underlying reality, this sort of unifying um, impulse, uh, was something that a lot of them were drawing on very strongly. And that was clear um, in many of the sources. Sometimes they would refer specifically to Nietzsche. More often they would um, talk about you know, the Dionysian power of music, that sort of thing. But the, the reference was clear. Um, and so I knew that I needed to talk about Nietzsche in some way. Um, the problematic thing I kept finding, though, was that they didn't really fit um, at least my conception of what Nietzsche had been saying in his philosophy. And the more I looked at their ideas about music and about society and nation and the transformation um, of society in the modern world, um, the clearer it became that they were very selectively uh, reading Nietzsche. Um, and I think the most striking example of this is simply the fact that, you know, they, they talk about Nietzsche in, in very elevated language. Uh, sometimes they actually refer to him as a prophet, as the figure who most perfectly understood uh, the future path that humanity was to follow. So, you know, incredibly uh, dramatic words. But they always come back to this argument that uh, he made one small mistake in his interpretation. And that mistake was that he didn't believe in God. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you know Nietzsche's philosophy, it's, it's really strange to try and imagine, on the one hand, you know, embracing um, Nietzsche as a prophet, and then at the same time saying, you know, he was mistaken about that one little thing. And so mm -hmm. I was trying to come up with a way of, of capturing that irony, that on the one hand, they are so much... Um, drawing on Nietzsche's ideas and influence. And at the same time, they're so actively distancing themselves because um, one of the arguments that comes out time and again is that the problem with modernity is that uh, humans have lost touch with the spiritual aspect and with religion. And for some of them, this means, of course, uh, more traditional conceptions of religion, um, orthodoxy. For others, you know, um, not so much the, the traditional idea that we have. But very much the, the sense that we need not just to uh, transform human society, but we need to, in a sense, re-spiritualize it. Um, and so I came up with the idea of orphans because in this way, I thought it captured this, this distance that they had. And then the other problem that uh, I noticed a lot as I was thinking about this more and um, looking at 
what a lot of uh, the writers and composers and figures that I look at wrote about Nietzsche. They're also very aware of the fact that they are drawing on uh, a German writer Mm. in order to try and help them define what it means to be Russian. And of course, there's a very strong irony in that as well, because um, part of this process of um, celebrating music and its spiritual transformative power is also about imagining what Russia should be. And so there's almost... uh, a bad conscience that some of them seem to have that um, in order to get this inspiration, they have to draw from someone who actually is not himself Russian. And so in that sense too, it felt like um, the the image of the orphan really captured these distances um, that my historical subjects had from, from Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. So before we talk a bit more about the reading of Nietzsche and conception of music more broadly, I'm hoping you could talk a bit more about the social context for this world of educated listeners that you describe. Where did they meet? How did they connect? Um, Were there any women? Was it all men? How did it all work? Mm -hmm. Um, So when I started the project, uh, it was initially focused uh, particularly on looking at um, composers, three composers, um, and the composers themselves changed as I did more research, Uh, but it was very, I would say, uh, male-dominated. All of the composers I found that were um, active at the time and being written about extensively uh, in the press were men. Um, almost all of the critics writing the um, things that were being published were men as well. Um, and I, I initially had this feeling like, you know, are, are, are there no women involved in musical life? Um, and then I started thinking a bit more about the social uh, component. Where were people meeting to talk about these ideas? And where were they going to actually listen to the music? Um, and that's when... I um, suddenly realized that there was a really important um, place that women held um, in this society. And of course, it's not um, necessarily that they are the visible ones making the music, um, but they are very active in terms of um, creating the spaces where music is held and where music is talked about. Um, So for instance, one of the figures in my book, uh, Margarita Marozova, was uh, a wealthy widow. Her husband had died at a young age. And she was very devoted both to philosophy and to music uh, in particular. Uh, She took piano lessons from two of the composers I looked at, Alexander Skriabin and Nikolai Metner. And she also hosted um, salon events in her house where she would basically invite the cultural elite in um, Moscow at the time to come and, you know, discuss these big ideas. And uh, amongst those ideas, she was really interested in in music. And she was also interested in uh, spirituality and the revival of sort of pure Russianness. And there were also many women that were present at these events that were not necessarily reflected, um, in the initial written sources that I was looking at. Um, And so if I was to characterize the individuals that I look at, um, I mentioned already that they are from the cultural elite. Uh, They 
tend to be from urban centers. Um, a number of them come from uh, provincial cities, but perhaps moved to Moscow or Petersburg um, at some point in time. So a lot of them have uh, spent time abroad um, in Europe and have a very strong sense of themselves as cultured Europeans as well as Russians. And there's that interesting dichotomy, um, particularly because at the same time that they see themselves as Russian and not European necessarily, um, they're also very aware of their status within Russian society and that they are a very small um, group within the larger framework um, of Russia. So they are seldom interacting with uh, peasants or workers, um, but they have very clear ideas about you know, what the ideal Russian culture that came out of the, in part came out of peasant society, um, looked like. So they're, they're very productive. Um, if you study culture from the time period, um, these would be the individuals that you come across quite often. So I looked at writers like Andrei Bieli, Vyacheslav Ivanov, um, as well as musicians um, and some artists as well. Uh, some of them are involved in politics, but politics didn't tend to come up at these events specifically. Um, usually this tends to be a group of people that think that culture um, and transformation of uh, cultural life is the way to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, they would be this small group, uh, very privileged um, in the context of the time, but also extremely influential in the artistic production um, that they were uh, engaged in. Mm -hmm. So to turn now to the ideas that they were discussing and disseminating, um, the first chapter of your book is called Musical Metaphysics in Late Imperial Russia. What was musical metaphysics? Um, so I... I actually drew this term from um, some of the articles that were being written at the time to talk about music. Um, and I liked it because of its uh, reference to metaphysics, but also its, its vagueness, actually, because I found that um, in a lot of these discussions about music, there, there are constants. Um, it's always uh, seen as this transformative power. It's a spiritual force rather than um, a material force. But they don't actually tend to define it explicitly in relation um, to musical styles. And it's much more about the impact that music has on um, the human listener. And so I liked the idea of this being a metaphysical um, impulse. And the idea that it is musical also references um, this widespread idea that music is um, something that appeals immediately and directly to the emotions rather than to the rational mind. So it's seen then as a way of transcending um, the everyday rational world that we live in and achieving a higher level of reality, which um, it's believed is possible actually through the experience of a musical work. Uh, but what that specifically looked like in terms of musical style is um, never clearly defined or agreed upon. So 
I, I really liked this dualistic aspect of the term. Mm-hmm. You already hinted at this a few minutes ago, but what problems did interpreting Nietzsche pose in the Russian context? And how did these this group of people deal with those problems? Yeah, well, I think the, the main problems were, of course, uh, Nietzsche's atheism, which didn't fit well with the um, cultural project that many of these thinkers were engaged in. Um, the fact that he was German rather than Russian, so that's a little bit of a problematic thing. Um, there, there's even some really imaginative uh, attempts to claim Nietzsche as, you know, maybe truly a Slavic thinker, uh, which has some um, basis in some of Nietzsche's late writings. But there's one um, music critic in particular that um, explicitly and repeatedly refers to Nietzsche as a Polish writer with the idea that Poles are also Slavs and therefore somehow, you know, closer um, in spirit to the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um Apart from that, you know, it's also, I think, just the fact that a lot of these uh, critics and commentators um, that reference some of Nietzsche's ideas, um, they did not all have a clear um, grasp of what Nietzsche's ideas actually were. And so it does raise the question of how many of them were seriously engaging in Nietzsche's work. Some of them definitely were. Um, in the case of Emil Metner, who was um, a music critic and also involved in the uh, literary symbolist movement, he was actually uh, researching Nietzsche and hoping to write a biography of the philosopher. But in many cases, I think that these were ideas that were picked up as much from conversations and excerpts that had been published in Russian as from sitting down and reading Nietzsche's ideas uh, directly. So there, and there was also then a tendency to blur um, Nietzsche's ideas and Wagner's ideas, um, which again, were not necessarily understood um, directly by looking at the artist himself, but from this general culture, um, some of the performances of Wagner's works and the associations that these uh, awoke. And it it was difficult for me at first because uh, I did a lot of reading of Nietzsche and I kept being frustrated um, that so many of these people were getting some of his ideas wrong. Um, and, <laughs> you know, then you step back and you say, well, actually, it's really interesting thinking about this, not so much in terms of do they properly understand Nietzsche, but what are they doing with his ideas? Um, and what they wanted to do was... Um, respond to problems that they were identifying in contemporary Russian society, some of which Nietzsche had, of course, uh, identified as problems of modernity, but others that were, of course, particular to the the Russian sphere. And so, you know, you have some creative reinterpretation that comes in. Yeah, you mentioned that there's this interesting attempt to integrate Nietzsche's ideas from the birth of tragedy, or however they understood them, with the writings of the Orthodox philosopher Solovyov. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so this is um, tied in with the idea that Nietzsche's one big mistake was that he um, wrote religion out of the uh, picture. And the other key figure that a lot of um, the members of cultured society at the time draw on are the ideas of Vladimir Solovyov. 
in particular, some of his ideas about creativity as transforming and spiritualizing um, humanity. So the idea that through the creative impulse, you actually um, remake yourself into something that is closer uh, to God. So by bringing those two things together, the idea that you know music can be this unifying force. Uh, Salaviov also has uh, his own interpretation of music as the most spiritual uh, of forces. They're able to overcome that issue they have with Nietzsche, who um, doesn't seem to be talking about spiritualization, um, and bring it into a specifically Russian context. And Salaviov is really central in allowing them to do that. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned that a big part of musical metaphysics is this attempt to reach out to the narod, which is this eternal concern for the Russian intelligentsia. Yes. Um, so what sort of experiments were put into practice um, to make this a reality? And how did it, how did it go? Um, so I, I kept being bothered by um, the, the clear disconnect between um, these elites and the Narod, who they, of course, um, like to idealize and talk about. And I found two examples of uh, individuals or groups uh, that were really actively trying to uh, reach out to the Narod, which made really uh, fascinating case studies. And the first of these was the so-called uh, People's Conservatory, that was founded in Moscow after the 1905 revolution. Um, the idea was that this would be a conservatory not for you know, members of um, higher society, but actually for workers. So they planned, for instance, that um, the costs would be very low. Um, lessons would be, for the most part, in the evenings rather than during the day, because, of course, if you're a worker, you can't just not go to work. So they were trying to um, plan everything around this imagined worker schedule. But the, the rationale that they had for doing this was really interesting. And this was that um, the Narod um, had actually been in the process of forgetting uh, what it meant to be truly Russian. And so the idea was that through teaching them music, um, the... Uh, Intelligentsia would actually be helping the Narod to reclaim this Russianness that they had themselves lost. Um, and they had very particular ways that they envisioned doing this as well. Um, like choral song was a, a huge uh, concept here um, it, because they have this idea that um, if music is supposed to create unity, which is, of course, um, part of this Nietzschean idea of music being the Dionysian unity. Um, and they feel that unity is lacking in Russian society. Um, they say, well, what better way to bring people together and unify them by, than by having them all get together and sing the same things in these massive choirs? Um, and there's a whole theoretical basis of this. They have arguments about um, whether or not lessons should be given on inst individual instruments. Um, and there's this constant um, pressure to minimize the amount of individual work you do with these students because you want them to actually um, embrace this idea of the collective, which is part of what they believe 
you know, um, true uh, Russian identity should be related to. And one of my most interesting finds in the archive uh, was actually a number of letters from students at one of these uh, classes at the People's Conservatory. And the fascinating thing to see was just this complete disconnect between um, what the teachers uh, were you know, dedicating themselves to trying to do. And it should be noted, you know, most of these people were not getting much of a salary for this. It was really um, what they saw as their goodwill effort to reach out to the people. Um, but in many of these letters, the, the students were actually complaining about the fact that they didn't necessarily want the mass song experience. That's not why they wanted to study music. And it, it keeps echoing this uh, more individualist perspective that they want to study music because when they hear music, it moves them personally. And they want to be able to do that for themselves. And in some of the letters, there's almost a, a sense of resentment that um, their teachers haven't been giving them this individual uh, ability. So it's this really fascinating um, conflict between what the um, intelligentsia are imagining they're doing for the people and then um, this feedback that you're getting from the, the people that are actually supposedly being remade. Uh, so that was one of the examples I looked at. Um, the other one I looked at was a little bit less um, going to the people, uh, but it was also part of this idea of moving beyond individuality and creating a collective sense of belonging. And that was um, the House of Song in Moscow. And the, the founder of the House of Song, um, this uh, woman, Dalgame, uh, who had come back to Russia, she had married, I believe, a Frenchman and had been living in France for a while. Um, but her goal was to create this artistic uh, collective, really, in which you would have uh, patrons who would um, subscribe to the concerts, which meant that, you know, they had the right to go to all the concerts, but they would do things like they would vote on um, what kind of repertoire should be in um, the performances. And they would have special collective um, events where um, they would bring people together who were um, part of this collective to try and have them work together to actually create something. Um, and I think the one case I looked at was this um, interesting uh, translation of, uh, I believe it was a, a Hindu text that um, they were looking, first of all, for volunteers, for people who would write music for it, um, but then also volunteers for people who would help to collectively stage this event. Um, and it was not about doing this for audiences. The goal was, of course, for there to ultimately not be an audience per se that was separate from the performers, but that everyone would be involved um, in the experience. Yeah, this tension that you describe between these collective aspirations of elite music lovers on the one hand and the actual desires of the broader audience that's listening to and playing music in this period, um, it certainly comes up in attitudes towards the three main composers that you describe as well. Um, so to turn to that, let's start with Scriabin, who is the basis of chapter two in your book. So you write that in his early development, he seemed particularly ill-suited to fill the unifying role of a contemporary Russian Orpheus. 
Uh, so why was that? And how was Scriabin elevated by some into the role of Orpheus? So the idea of Orpheus um, ties back to uh, the point I made about the the lack of specificity in this concept of musical metaphysics. Um, and basically, there was general agreement about the idea that music was a spiritual transcendent force, um, that Russia needed some kind of uh, figure, musical figure that could help reunify the country after the trauma, particularly of the 1905 revolution. But where there wasn't agreement was who that figure should be and what his music should sound like. Um, and so where you start having a lot of um, disagreements within this uh, community of Nietzsche's orphans is when you get to the point of actually trying to say which contemporary composer might have the ability through his music to bring about this transformation. Um, and Scriabin is fascinating in many ways because he is, of all the composers, he's the one who himself... Um, embraces a lot of these ideals about music and uh, really sees himself as a figure uh, who, you know, he, he literally believes that through his music, he's going to bring the world to an end. Um, the reason initially he seems so problematic is this basic dichotomy between the individual and the collective. And particularly in Scriabin's early development, if you read his philosophical notebooks, um, he is an extreme individualist uh, to the point of solipsism in some of his writings. He um, has some moments where he basically seems to doubt the existence of every everything around him except himself, right? So you know, everything else might be simply a figment of his imagination or, you know, he, he actually has created the world around him. And so he sometimes somehow is the, the ultimate, um, and only in some cases being, and he's very, um, harshly critiqued by some of his contemporaries for this extreme individualism. Um, what becomes interesting is how he is then sort of re-inscribed uh, by his admirers, um, particularly by about 1910 or so, um, when he comes back to Russia after he's been living abroad for a few years. Um, not as an individualist, but as someone who is desiring the sort of suborni or collective uni unity. Um, and that is partly embodied in his own philosophical development um, and his uh, recognition of himself then as as he uh, develops not as the only like existing um, consciousness in the world but as basically part of this uh, universal consciousness um, it's it's much more complicated than that but in in short terms um, he is recognizing sort of the unity of all um, consciousnesses into this absolute consciousness. And this actually fits in much better uh, with the collective impulse and desire that uh, many of the cultural elite had. And so they start interpreting his musical and philosophical development in these particular ways and emphasizing um, this increasingly collective aspect um, of his 
uh, musical writing and sort of trying to minimize the extreme individualism of his youth. And central to his compositions and to his personal sort of mythology as a prophet was this mystery that he was working on. What was it supposed to be like? So the the mystery is, um, yeah, it was Kriabin's life work. It was something that he um, continued to develop uh, over the course of his creative career. And his conception of it changed over time. And so if you talk about what he had envisioned it to be, it it can vary depending what point in his own development you talk about. Um, in its sort of broadest terms, it's he, he described it as um, a musical experience, not just mu- musical, but this sort of universal experience that would take place over the course of seven days uh, in a temple in India that he was going to have specially built for um, this event. And it would be not just music, but you would have colors, you would have uh, basically the pillars of this temple were supposed to uh, disintegrate into color at some point in time, you would have various smells and everything. And this experience would bring all the peoples of the world together um, for a moment of final mass ecstasy, um, after which the... um, sort of uh, multiplicity of the existing world would come to an end. So it's really this vision of the end of the universe that he thought through his music and through this experience of the mystery, um, he was destined to bring about. Um, In some ways, it's drawing on uh, theosophy, which was uh, a spiritual movement that Scriabin was interested in. Um, In some ways, he is very clearly adapting the ideas of theosophy for his own ends. Um, So um, in theosophy, if I remember correctly, the argument was that we were at the um, fifth stage of humanity and we had to go through, I believe, seven stages of humanity. Um, But Scriabin wasn't willing to accept that this was, you know, not the final um, end of everything. And so he had this uh, reinterpretation that he brought in that through his music, he would actually speed up time itself. And um, in the experience of the mystery, we would progress through these final phases of humanity and come um, to the ultimate end. And as an idea, it's uh, it's very strange to try to... Um, place this side by side with the sort of more um, Christian Orthodox view of some of his admirers. Um, And one of the really interesting things that comes out of looking at this is uh, not just Scriabin's own idea of what he wanted to do, but how it was reinterpreted by his admirers who would often give it um, more of a Christian twist. Um, and they were particularly able to do this because, of course, Scriabin died in 1915 without having finished writing the mystery. So um, they could then, of course, reflect upon it and um, offer their own interpretations, which were actually very different from what Scriabin had intended. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly setting the bar very high for a single work of music. Um, <laughs> although yes. you, you point out that Um, Even though he never completed the mystery, it was partially realized in his Prometheus. Um, But I was wondering what your approach was to writing about 
Skrab- Skriabin's music in particular, since especially for him and his followers, the experience of group emotion together with color, smell, sound, all of these things was supposed to offer a really mass transformative experience. Um, how do you go about writing about music, um, you know, A, that was supposed to incorporate so many elements and B, was never actually realized? So um, when I looked at Scriabin's music in particular, I, I drew very strongly. There's, there's a lot of wonderful uh, musicology that has looked at the development of Scriabin's uh, harmonic and melodic language to try and understand um, how he is creating a new, innovative uh, compositional language. Um, the issue I had with a lot of that as someone who was writing for a historical audience is a lot of this uh, scholarship is very um, specialized and not really accessible to um, broader audiences who are not uh, trained in music. And so the other thing I tried to do was... Um, look at not just how musicologists have analyzed um, the development of his musical style, but also how his contemporaries talked about it. And um, some of this was also, of course, very um, specialized and and focused, particularly the writings of uh, Leonid Sabaneyev. But a lot of it was more focused on questions of um, emotional response in the listener. And I found this was a useful way of, you know, getting at not just the, the specificities of what Scriabin was doing with the notes, which may or may not tell people uh, much who are not trained in music, but thinking about how people at the time, at least the people writing these reviews and such had responded to the music and what sort of um, emotional content they were identifying in it. Um, and I found that to be, uh, for my purposes, a much more effective way of thinking about um, the impact that music could have on audiences. The problem, of course, was that uh, people were in quite strong disagreement about what the emotions actually were that this kind of music um, was evoking, which I think talks to the uh, multivalence of music itself and the experience of music. Um, that however much you can say about the actual score or um, the sounds that you are hearing, so much of uh, one's response is based on this um, immediate personal reaction, which is is really a challenge to get at. Mm, Absolutely. Um, So to turn to a a quite different composer, let's shift to the Metner brothers. Um, So how did Nikolai Metner's approach differ from Skriabin's? How is his music different? And what was his claim to the status of Russian Orpheus? So Skriabin is often considered to be one of, if not the, uh, but definitely one of the most uh, innovative modernist composers of his generation. And he really developed his own um, unique harmonic language. Metner was much more in the realm of someone who was continuing um, classical, so romantic, tonal, uh, musical language. He was not someone who wanted to um, throw out the experience of past composers. He was a great admirer of Beethoven, for instance. And so 
Well, he does innovative things in terms of um, rhythm and harmony. He he is always staying within what he considered to actually be um, absolute laws that music um, had to function within. He believed that there were these inherent existing laws that um, dictated what made good music and what made bad music, um, and that to uh, transgress these was, of course, a... a a great danger. And this was one of the problems of modernity that some of these absolute laws had been transgressed. So that was his conception of music and his role as a, as a composer. Um, so it's, it's really this almost platonic idea that you have the ideal form of music that you are then um, striving to reach um, in your own composition. He's also uh, Unlike Scriabin, someone who was not um, personally comfortable with this idea of um, the Russian Orpheus who would transform society through his music, um, he's always much more cautious and doesn't himself engage in the same sort of philosophical um, dreamings that Scriabin did. But he has an older brother who I had mentioned briefly earlier, uh, Emil Metner, uh, who was much more the um, symbolist uh, sort of uh, mastermind behind interpreting uh, his, his younger brother's music. And this uh, discourse that Nikolai was a, an alternate Orphic figure, um, whereas with Scriabin, you can get some of it from Scriabin himself, uh, with the Metner brothers, that discourse is coming from um, the elder brother, Emil, rather than from the composer himself. So you have this um, interesting family dynamic then that is coming in. And Emil Metner, as someone who was very involved uh, in the literary symbolist movement, had a great deal of uh, influence over some of the other writings of the time. And so he um, influenced uh, writers like Andrei Biele to write reviews of Nikolai Metner's music within this framework of um, philosophical transcendence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they also have this sort of menage a trois going, which I guess was sort of uh, <laughs> typical for the period, <laughs> would you say? Um, yeah, yeah, surprisingly so, um, actually. And it, it's funny because um, a lot of the really wonderful uh, scholarship, if from the Soviet period about Nikolai Metner and um, a number of his letters that were published in the Soviet period uh, completely avoid discussing this at all because it was not, of course, um, the sort of thing that you wanted to discuss about your great composers at that point in time. But um, both Emil and Nikolai had the same wife at different moments uh, in time she she was also a musician, um, and she was uh, very much a supporter, like Emil Metner, of Nikolai's great musical talent. And yeah, it it got to the point that um, for various reasons, his Nikolai's parents didn't approve of the relationship, um, and so they they tried to uh, break up Nikolai and Anna. There are various things that happen, and then Emil actually marries Anna. Um, and then uh, things continue to develop with Nikolai. And at some point in time, uh, she's basically living with Nikolai instead of with Emil. Although 
their relationship is not made official until, um, I believe, after the start of the war. And it's a, it's a very complicated relationship. Um, it was wonderful me as, for, for me as a researcher because uh, the relationship between, between the three of them is uh, cataloged in great detail through um, these personal letters, particularly between Emil and Anna. Nikolai didn't write nearly so often, but Emil and Anna wrote to each other virtually every day. And so um, you have all sorts of difficult personal uh, situations, but also this uh, incredible record of the creative development of all three. Yeah, that's a wonderful resource for a historian. So to turn finally now to Rachmaninoff, um, who's the subject of chapter four in the book. He is, I would say, easily the most widely beloved of the composers you feature. But for Nietzsche's orphans, the, yes. he was actually a very problematic figure. And part of the problem was, in fact, his popularity. So why was that? I think this really speaks to um, the fear in um, amongst Nietzsche's orphans of the common people, actually. Um, and so there's this sense, of course, they want to um, create this better idealized uh, Russia, more spiritual Russia. But there's this sense that things are not necessarily going that well amongst the people themselves um, for a number of reasons. So modernity has sort of led them astray. They don't have the right value systems anymore. And a lot of that, I think, comes to the foreground in discussions about Rachmaninoff, um, because the concern is that people, yes, they, they seem to love Rachmaninoff more than the other composers, but do they love him for the right reasons, or are they just sort of wallowing in this individualistic, emotional um, pessimism that is so, um, they, they claim it's so common um, to the era. And so the concern is that Rachmaninoff in writing music that is perceived as um, overly pessimistic or melancholy is actually not using music to transform and spiritualize society. He's just sort of wallowing in the problems that modernity has wrought and that this is what makes him popular. Um, and so it's this very uh, dismissive view from um, at least a portion of Nietzsche's orphans about um, the, the wider public. And I think some of this is also tied in with concerns about capitalism. And um, there's always this great skepticism of uh, bourgeois culture and sort of street culture. Um, and Rachmaninoff is somehow associated with that because of his popularity. Um, and even his supporters, uh, particularly uh, the poet Marietta Chaguignan, who I, I talk about extensively, who really um, embraces Rachmaninoff as the um, true vision of this um, Orpheus in the modern age. Even she uh, is concerned at moments that his music is too pessimistic for the needs of Russian society. Um, and in her case, she'll actually, um, in letters to the composer, complain about this to him. Um, so there, there is this strong sense that um, Nietzsche's orphans themselves are expecting something from music and that they have this 
right to push back if the composers aren't meeting um, those desired goals. Yeah, you um, have this funny anecdote in the book. I guess Rachmaninoff himself preferred to avoid the kind of metaphysical discussions that uh, Emil Metner, for example, really reveled in. And there's this scene where he's having a conversation with the Metner brothers and they're trying to talk to him about philosophy and music, and he wants to talk about the proper method of cooking yes. Italian pasta. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's it's a great uh, anecdote that I think really captures the the different personalities of the artists. Mm-hmm. You pointed out his association with melancholy and perhaps pessimism. How would you say this is manifested in his music? Um, well, again. When I look at uh, the music, what I really was relying on extensively are um, responses that I found at the time period. And so um, these are terms that appear repeatedly uh, in reviews of his work. I think in terms of like trying to place it in his music, it has a lot to do with these um, long melodies that you find, these long sort of late romantic, um, very singable um, melodies, and just the the sort of harmonies that he makes use of, so a lot of um, minor type sounds. Um, but what I was really interested in was uh, not so much identifying in the music itself as in identifying what people were taking from it. Um, another example of this would be, of course, um, the use of the start of the Dies Irae chant um, from the Requiem Mass, which uh, was identified as appearing. And, and clearly it appears in some of his works, such as the Isle of the Dead. Um, and some commentators actually notice it in other works as well, which, of course, has um, very clear uh, associations, as does his... Um, uh, programmatic work, The Bells, which has um, a text by Edgar Allan Poe that has uh, very clear um, symbolic associations with it. Mm -hmm. So to bring us forward in time up to World War One, a major scene in your book is the funeral of Scriabin, who dies unexpectedly in 1915. Um, and this is the cause of great mourning and anxiety among his fans and followers. Um, so what happens not only with Scriabin, but more broadly to the dream of musical metaphysics with the outbreak of World War I and then the revolutions in 1917? So I think there, there are a number of directions that these ideas of musical metaphysics go. Um, they're, they're placed under great strain uh, with the outbreak of war in 1914. Part of that is tied in with the increasing... Uh, nationalist fervor um, that comes out of the war and, you know, the attacks on people, especially Germans and Jews who are not um, ethnically Russian. So they're potentially suspect groups. And this spills over into the musical realm. Um, not entirely. I mean, it's not like there is an official ban that says no German music can be played during the war, but but unofficially, there's this strong sense and there are discussions about, um, is it appropriate for Russians to listen to German music or, you know, are there inherent tendencies of the militaristic uh, German spirit in 
the music of the time. And a lot of people come to believe that that's the case. And from there, it's it's a really easy um, slippage to go from that to saying that, well, if that's the case, the appropriate kind of music for us to listen to is actually music by someone who is ethnically Russian. Um, and this, of course, uh, because of his uh, German ancestry, places um, Nikolai Metner in a very difficult position. Um, in the case of Skriabin, his death in 1915 is uh, really a major blow, uh, in part because so many of these dreams of you know, the, the future more spiritual Russia uh, were tied in with images of, of what Skriabin's mystery was supposed to do. And so particularly in the months after uh, his death and the year or two after his death, what you find is discussions of Skriabin's death focus on a couple of things. They focus on trying to explain what happened. Um, and they're never willing to accept the idea that this was just, you know, bad luck that he died of a, a blood infection from a boil that he had. And But there's this constant idea that there has to be a higher spiritual meaning, and we have to interpret what that is. Um, and initially, in so not that long after his death, when things in the war um, are not as bad as they're going to become later, um, there's this idea that Skriabin has shown us the way forward. We need to continue to do this. We need to continue developing our Russianness or spirituality. And this will lead to our victory, not just militarily, but spiritually as well. Um, as time goes on and people become more skeptical of um, military victory in the direction that Russia um, as a country is heading, a lot of this also spills over into interpretations of Skriabin and what he and his music actually meant for the country. And so there's this um, new narrative of Satanism that is actually tied in um, specifically with Skriabin saying that he wasn't, you know, this great spiritual figure, he was actually awakening dark forces. But the really important aspect of this is that it's not just a way for them to talk about Skriabin, but it's a way for them to try and make sense of the direction that Russia itself is going in at this point in time, um, which I think really speaks to the way that music is uh, a metonym for talking about Russia, Russians, uh, the problems of Russian society more broadly at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And Rachmaninoff, of course, leaves um, not too long after the revolution in 1917. Why does he decide to leave and how does that impact his legacy? So he um, he doesn't write extensively about why he decides to leave um, at the time, but he clearly was concerned about the direction that things were going um, after the revolution in February. Uh, he applied to get a visa to leave um, even earlier, and he, I believe, is able to leave in December 1917, so after the uh, Bolshevik revolution in October. And he claims at least that he's only leaving for a concert tour, but um, um, obviously he chooses then never to come back to Russia. Uh, my impression is a lot of this has to do with the uncertainty of just living in a country that has been at war and is now uh, going through revolution. He's concerned about his family. And he has um, actually a relatively 
um, straightforward path out. I mean, obviously, it's 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 not that easy to leave, but as a recognized artist, um, he is able to um, leave on a performance uh, visa, take his family with him, and he's able to establish himself um, because of the broader popularity of his music. And he basically remakes himself um, less as a composer after 1917 and more as a, a performer and um, actually does very well uh, financially. Mm-hmm. So he clearly was very nostalgic for the Russia that he left behind, but there are a couple of cases in um, his reminiscences about um, his estate in particular of Ivanovka. There, there's a scene where he talks about um, the last time that he went there. And he is talking about, you know, working on on the estate and so on and so forth. And then he has this um, moment when the peasants come to confront him. And basically they they tell him that he should leave. Um, He says that, you know, he's he's always treated them well and so on and so forth. And he say, yes, but you should leave anyway. Um, And this was clearly a very traumatic thing for him because mm-hmm. he he chooses not to discuss that any further but there there is this sense that um for his um himself and his family he felt like this was not um a space where he was going to um be welcome anymore mm-hmm. for whatever reason so overall to do kind of a postmortem diagnosis would you say that the story of musical metaphysics in Russia in the end is a sort of tragedy where all of these dreams of transformation through music and high culture come to an end in World War I and 1917? Or would you say that some of the aspirations live on, albeit in altered form, in the Soviet state and perhaps abroad? Um, I think there's a tragic aspect to it, but... Um... There, there are also reverberations of it um, that carry on both in the emigre community and in the Soviet Union. Um, the experiments in the 1920s with things like mass song and so on, um, there's still this great emphasis on the unifying power of music. Um, and actually, some of the people who were involved in things like the People's Conservatory before 1917 um, continue uh, their work with a just a very slight like reworking of their own philosophy um, in the Soviet period. So someone like Nadezhda Brusova becomes uh, very influential in um, Soviet musical education. Um, obviously, the, the discussion of spirituality is going to um, shift after 1917, but there still is this idea that music has um, this incredible um, force. And if you look at how the Soviet state... Um, use music as a cultured influence and in giving um, tickets to concerts to workers and these sorts of things. There, there is this continued um, aspiration that music can somehow um, better the human spirit. Um, you have some continuity as well in the emigre community. Um, in that context, I would say it tends to be um, more often tied to this realm of idealized memory and sort of the um, celebration of the Russia that was 
lost after 1917, um, at least in the sources that I have looked at. Um, and then, of course, there is the tragic aspect of it that so many of these aspirations and hopes simply were not met. Um, and you could ask yourself, I mean, maybe that was inevitable. The sort of um, expectations that were placed on music were so high. Maybe it was simply always going to be the case that at some point in time, they, they were going to be disappointed. Um, but um, the continued importance of music, I think, in Soviet society does speak to at least um, an echo of some of these ideals of the late imperial period. Mm -hmm. Before we leave the book entirely, I wanted to ask you if among these composers, do you have a favorite or a least favorite, uh, perhaps? And if so, which compositions catch your fancy in particular? Um, you know, I like each composer for different reasons. Um, musically, I was drawn to the project uh, initially because of Scriabin, mm -hmm. um, and particularly Scriabin's uh, piano works, um, his piano sonatas, um, the fifth sonata, the ninth sonata, um, some of his late poems like uh, Towards the Flame, um, which I just found uh, incredibly evocative and um, unique. And so... From a purely musical perspective, that is where my heart, um, I think, still lies. Uh, Rachmaninoff's music, of course, um, is is wonderful and um, I think very accessible to people in a way that Scriabin's music is um, definitely not. Um, in case of, in the case of Nikolai Metner, I think that he has... He, so he was the composer I actually didn't know about until I started the project and um, discovered uh, him from the comparisons that were always being drawn with Skriabin and Rachmaninoff. Um, but he, he has some incredible works, and the ones that I would in particular um, reference would be his Forgotten Melodies, um, which I do mention briefly in the book, um, and also uh, his two... A sonata vocalise and sweet vocalise for piano and voice. Um, I only know of one recording of them, but they are really um, beautiful works and deserve to be better known. Mm. Yeah, thank you for the recommendations. I have to admit I hadn't heard of Nikolai Metner, and I will I will listen after our interview. Um, so, <laughs> so we're about out of time, but before we leave you, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, so I have... Um, a couple of projects that I am exploring at present. Um, one of them sort of uh, continues into the uh, emigre communities and is trying to look at um, the ways in which Russian identity was preserved or or questioned in the in amongst the emigre community after the 1917 revolution, um, when you have these various diaspora groups. Um, and then the other project that I've been playing with actually was inspired by my uh, constant frustration when I was working on the first project in that I felt that um, I learned a lot about the cultural elite. Um, I learned a lot about um, reception within um, certain spheres of society, but I felt like I was never really getting at the experiences of um, vast portions of society in mm -hmm. the Russian empire. Um, and so you know, I, I asked myself, well, where would you go to get that sort of um, experience? And um, 
the other aspect that I kept coming across in my reading, but I didn't go into for the first project, uh, was actually the realm of religious music. And um, so the other interesting thing that's happening at this time is there's a, a whole series of discussions about the role of music in religious life. Um, and so my new project is looking at um, the ways in which uh, the experience of sound and orality in um, religious worship, so Orthodox churches, um, synagogues, um, so on and so forth, um, actually helped or or opposed in some cases uh, the creation of an imperial Russian identity. Um, so I'm looking at um, Orthodox church music reform um, and focusing on particular centers where you have um, a range of um, ethnic and religious groups. Um, so I've done a lot of work in Kazan, um, looking at sort of uh, multi-ethnicity, multi-confessionality, and the role of um, music in those contexts. That sounds really fascinating and in some ways a natural outgrowth of some of your interest in the national question in Nietzsche's children. Um, so thank you so much for being with us today, Rebecca Mitchell. I really enjoyed speaking with you and please thank take you. care.